Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Nolan is standing by. Hey, Wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome. To another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back. The get right game may or may not have gotten right, depending on who you asked. But the Buffalo Bills have defeated the New York Jets 18 to 10 since the last time that we have had the opportunity of talking. And there have been narratives that have come out about that game that I kind of feel like we need to talk about. I kind of feel like there are things. There are things we need to discuss and try and close the book on some of those narratives before we dive into the New England Patriots tomorrow on the Friday edition of the Bruce Exclusive. We will also be talking trade deadline things tomorrow for the Bruce exclusive, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's take a step back, kind of process. Yes, I said the word process the results of the Jets game. And specifically, let's start with the idea that we wanted the Bills to dominate the Jets. That's what we wanted. We wanted a dominant performance. Depending on who you ask, you might get different answers as to whether or not the Bills dominated the New York Jets. My question is, before we even start with it, well, wait a second. Let's define dominance. If the only way by which you define dominance is final score, then the Bills did not dominate the Jets. Never happened. It's not a real thing. I would make an argument that there are other ways of describing dominance because the final score is important. It is ultimately whether or not you get the W or the L. But as we've talked about on this podcast numerous times, the how and the why of winning is more indicative of future winning than just the win itself. The W is great. The method by which you acquire the W can tell you something about the future. Look at the Chicago Bears. Five and two, not feeling great because they knew 
when they got to five and one, that the method by which they were winning those games was probably not sustainable and might not hold up to good competition consistently. They played against the Rams. It did not go well. Now, that doesn't mean they can't return to their fluky ways next week. They can absolutely do that. It's a very reasonable possibility. But their fans kind of intrinsically know eh, it's a little fool's gold. You might hear this referred to as paper tiger. So qualitatively, it matters how you win. And so let's qualify the word dominance. If the only thing you want to use to determine dominance is final score, then the Bills did not dominate the New York Jets on Sunday. What if you'd like to use win probability? The Buffalo Bills, even after going down 3-0 for a long time, and then going down 10-0, and then 10-3, 10-6, 10-9, the second the Bills got to being down 10-9, they had a higher probability of winning, even after they still had kicked their third field goal and hadn't taken the lead yet. The Jets were ahead in win probability for a brief moment. They were ahead from the moment they went to 10-0 until the moment the Bills kicked their third field goal and shortened the lead to 10-9. The rest of the way, the Bills were ahead in win probability. The vast majority of the game. So, that's a different way to look at it. Let's look at overall team stats, shall we? Bills had 422 yards. The Jets had 191. The Bills had 26 first downs. The Jets had 17. If you're a time of possession person, Bills 34-33, Jets 25-27. When you look at that total yards, that looks like a that looks like a dominating victory. 422 to 191, that looks like a dominating victory. So it's really important before we talk about whether or not we think the Bills actually dominated the Jets or not, that we qualify what dominance means. And I'm not here to qualify that for you. You were sitting there expecting me to come up with a definition of dominance. But the truth is that dominance is subjective. So if you're one of the people who thinks that final score gap is the only thing that determines dominance, point differential, then the Bills did not dominate the Jets. If you have different ways of looking at that, more qualitative measurements, then perhaps you could be. But I will tell you how I felt. And that was I was feeling panicked when the Bills went down 10 to nothing. I felt panic. I was concerned. After the first two scoring Jets drives where they stopped moving the ball and Buffalo was continually moving the ball and having things happen to them that would hold them to a field goal or mess up the drive, I thought this is just a matter of time. The Bills the Bills are going to come back and make this a competitive game that I believe we're going to win. That's how I viewed it. But dominance is in the eye of the beholder. And if you want to view it differently, I'm not going to tell you not to feel that. I'm not going to try to convince you why we actually dominated them. Because using final score, while I do believe it is 
shorthanded, perhaps, utilized as a method of dominance, is a perfectly reasonable method by which to do that. So I'm not going to tell you that. But I think it's important that when you're having discussions or potentially arguments with another person as to whether or not the Bills dominated the Jets, that you ask them to qualify their definition of dominance. Because the definition of dominance applies more to this game than any in recent memory for the Bills. But that's not the only thing to come out of the game. So the Bills are 5-2. and two. Their two losses are to AFC championship contenders, Tennessee Titans and Kansas City Chiefs. Their five wins are against the Jets, the Dolphins, the Rams, the Raiders, and the Jets again. The Rams and the Raiders are good teams. The Dolphins are a decent team. The Jets are not a decent team. Is it okay for us to just say, based on the preponderance of the evidence right now, that there's a chance the Bills are a good, not great team? When we've played good teams, we've played them close, but we've won. When we played great teams, we lost. Is it okay to just be good right now and hope that the game can continue to evolve for the Buffalo Bills over the course of the rest of the season? Because that's where I feel like this team is at right now. It's a good team. When they play really good or great teams, they might struggle. They might lose. But based on what we have so far, and I do feel like seven weeks is a reasonable sample size. We've talked about a lot about sample size on this podcast. And I think seven weeks is a reasonable sample size. But right now, the Bills have indicated to me that they're a good, not great team. Let's hope we can take the next step and become a great team. But right now, that's not where they are. Let's talk about personnel moves. This came up over the last week, specifically because of how bad the guard play has been for the Buffalo Bills. Ike Butker was not good against the Jets. Brian Winters hasn't been good most of the year. And of course, that brings us to the Quentin Spain release. And the idea that we really could have used him. And I, I agree. Quentin Spain is a better guard than Brian Winters. He's a better guard than Ike Botker. I went off on a tangent not too long ago about why I think the Bills ended up replacing Quentin Spain. But this is really important, and I want us to talk about it before we dive into anything else. Whether or not something is a bad decision is a lot more complicated than simply whether or not the result was poor for the party making the call. Just saying, well, it ended up badly, therefore it's a bad decision, is flawed logic. Well, Spain is better than Winters, therefore cutting Spain was bad. No. I'm not saying cutting Spain wasn't bad. I'm saying that can't be the reason why. Do you know who uses this logic? People who say the Bills should have drafted Patrick Mahomes. That's the same logic. Well, in retrospect, Patrick Mahomes is better than Josh Allen. Therefore, passing on him was a mistake. It's not that simple. Could a reasonably prudent person have been expected to make the call 
based on all contributing factors at the time of the decision. I have gone on record as saying that I, a long time ago, was in the, we should have drafted Patrick Mahomes camp. I was. And then I spent some time thinking about it. And I have argued against that specifically that it would be unreasonable to expect Sean McDermott with no personnel background to make a franchise QB call based on the scouting of a GM and scouting staff that were about to get fired. If you don't trust them enough to keep them employed, why would you trust them enough to help you provide the pivotal information for one of the most important decisions of your entire career? It's unreasonable to expect that. It's not as simple as, well, Patrick Mahomes is good, therefore we should have taken him. It's not that simple. Do you know where else this comes into play? Wyatt Teller. Wyatt Teller got traded to the Cleveland Browns and was starting off this year before his injury really, really well. At one point, he was Pro Football Focus's number one graded guard. We can have a completely separate discussion about Pro Football Focus grades, and at some point we will. But that leads to the next step. Was it a mistake to trade Wyatt Teller? Is it as simple as, well, we traded him and now he's playing well, therefore it was a mistake? No, because that's the same logic you used with Mahomes. And it's bad logic. Was there any reasonable way for the Bills to be able to tell that he would have been as good as he is in Cleveland here if he would have stayed? Also, the value that we got from him was in part used to acquire Stephon Diggs. I'm not saying that no one's going to make a mistake ever. I'm saying you have to eliminate all of the information that you have acquired since the move has made and then try and think through the move again. We all have the benefit of hindsight. And it's real easy to make decisions in hindsight. You see this happen all the time with draft. Could have drafted this guy. Could have drafted that guy. Could have drafted this guy. Well, yeah. But it's so easy to just look at all the people who were picked after your team made their pick and say, well, look, at that guy's better. That guy's better. That guy's better. At the time, did we think that? One of the reasons why I really enjoyed the podcast I did with Joe Marino from Locked On Bills immediately following the draft is because we put our stamps down and said, here's who I would have drafted with no additional benefit of information. Here's who I would have drafted. So we have audio receipts If the players that we liked do well, great. If the players we liked did poorly, so be it. But we stamped it out right there and said, I would have drafted this guy. It's easy to go back with hindsight. Wyatt Teller was not a great guard when he played for the Buffalo Bills and had an opportunity to start a couple games. It wasn't like there was crazy flashes and we gave up on this incredibly promising guy. Is there a chance they could have known that he would have developed a little bit? Sure. But they clearly didn't because that was the same year they made significant investments to the offensive line. That's when they brought in Quentin Spain, John Feliciano, drafted Cody Ford, signed Mitch Morse. That tells you what they thought of Wyatt Teller. They did all those things 
because they didn't think Wyatt Teller was going to be what he was. Did you? Did I? Wyatt Teller was not great on the field when he played. And the Bills, if they wouldn't have drafted any offensive lineman and they wouldn't have signed Feliciano and Quentin Spain, there's a chance they would have been doing Josh Allen a disservice by not protecting him. And then when you sign all those people and you draft these people, then it pushes Wyatt Teller down the depth chart and you end up getting assets for someone who wasn't going to play for you. Evaluate the decision with all of the information they had at the time of the decision. Not with information you have since acquired afterwards. You're cheating. You are time cheating. You're using a bunch of information you have that they didn't have. It's the same reason why you don't go back in the future and mess with a timeline. Haven't you guys ever seen a movie where you go back in time and you don't mess with anything? It's because you know all the things that happened between that moment that you're in now and the moment you came from. You know all that stuff. But they don't. So we're really going to do that time traveling thing. I've seen this pop up because Ray Ray McLeod is starting to return punts really well for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And people for the Pittsburgh media are like, how could they possibly have let such a talented player go? Was Ray Ray McLeod someone who showed the Buffalo Bills that he was worthy of being a rostered player and a NFL caliber punt returner? I don't think so. So you can't just use hindsight. You have to use the information that the person making the decision had at the time they made it. And those are the things you can evaluate. It can't just be as simple as, well, it worked out or well, it didn't. This is the reason why we do things like win probability. This is the reason why we argue about two-point conversions. This is the reason why the success of a play call is not determined by whether or not it worked. This is the same logic that has you say, well, you know, it worked out when a quarterback who's in the grasp, switches the ball to his non-dominant hand and throws it out left-handed to somebody he sees flash in front of him at the last minute. If it works out, does that mean it was a good decision? It's the same thing. It's the exact same logic. Just because something doesn't work out doesn't mean it was a wrong call. And just because something does work out doesn't mean it was the right call. That's not how decision-making works. And if you only use the result to determine whether or not it was a good decision, then you're going to mess up. You're going to mess a lot of things up. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. We are going to dive into the Jets film, some of the narratives coming out of the game. Stick with me. We'll be right back. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of The Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive, and we're back. We're back with... Jets narratives. You know, it's interesting. 
Watching football analytically requires a skill set that I'm continually trying to evolve. And that is, you have to admit that you cannot watch every player individually after one time through the broadcast of the game. Football has 22 players on the screen simultaneously, and a lot of the broadcast angle cuts a lot of them off. So if you think that you are someone who can watch the broadcast angle one time live and walk away with a good solid opinion on how every single person on that field played, you're lying. There's a level of humility that's necessary to be able to watch football analytically to be able to say, listen, I don't know. I have to go back and watch it. This is why I don't yell at people when they say I have to go back and watch the film. Because sometimes that's the correct answer. Now, it shouldn't always be the correct answer. You should have a general pulse of what's going on with your team, especially if you're the coach. But you watch the quarterback the vast majority of all plays. And that brings me to my first observation for the Jets game. And that is, Ed Oliver is really good at football. He's really good at football. That third and 20... That the Jets converted, he was in Darnold's lap. When he was at one tech, they played him at one tech sometimes. Pushes back, stones the guard, sheds in the right direction. A.J. Klein misses the tackle. 103 left in the first. Double team, stoned. Next play, he gets under the left guard, carries him for a ride, and met A.J. Epinesa at the ball carrier, loss of three. These plays flash in front of you if you're watching just Ed Oliver, specifically from the All-22 angle, but even on broadcast, Ed Oliver played excellent. I am not here for your Ed Oliver hate. And that's the kind of play you want to see because the Jets' guards are not great. And Ed Oliver has been dealing with a nagging knee injury. And I am very hopeful that if Joe Tooney is not able to go against the Bills for the New England Patriots as their left guard this weekend, that Ed Oliver will be able to have a significant impact on this game because he is a significant impact player who's been playing hurt. But that's not what we do. What we do is we watch the game and if we don't notice his name being called or him sacking the quarterback many times, we run to our Twitter accounts and say he's a bust. But that's not how football watching works. That's one of the great things about football watching and we should should revel in it. It's that it's so complicated and so in-depth that it requires sometimes multiple watch-throughs of different position groups to even get it right. But Ed Oliver was really, really good. And sometimes, if you ask me on social media, what did you think of this person? Immediately after the game, I'm going to say, I don't know. Because I may have only caught them a couple snaps. And it's unfair of me to give a significant overview with a broad paintbrush before I've done the work. And I'm going to try really hard not to do that. Now, there may be flash plays that are good and flash plays that are bad. And that stuff happens. But... I'm not going to be able to focus on every position group 
all the way through. If you can, good on you. But I don't know anybody else who can. Ed Oliver was really, really good. Tremaine Edmonds dropped two interceptions. I would like to see those caught. He was in the wrong place on stretch runs a couple times. First and 10, 937 left in the second. He scrapes past a center, makes the tackle, one yard loss. It was an interesting play. Uh, the motion was designed to pull the linebackers over one gap so that the line could get out in front of him and seal. It was interesting. But Tremaine Edmonds, because he's got the burst, was able to get ahead of that. And it was a great play. Had some good plays, had some bad plays. I would say overall it was a step forward for Tremaine Edmonds. And I don't think it's coincidental that he had Matt Milano next to him more often than he did the last couple of weeks. Dane Jackson. I watched every single snap of Dane Jackson because I promised you that I would because a lot of people wanted to hear about him. I think it's an interesting thing that we do sometimes as fans. We have what I call mystery box players. I'm referring to a Family Eye episode where Peter and Lois are offered a boat or something in a mystery box. And Peter, after Lois has says, are you kidding me? We'll take the boat. Peter says, whoa, 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 Lois. A boat's a boat. But a mystery box could be anything. It could even be a boat. And that's the joke. The joke is we have these mystery box players. And usually... They're late round or undrafted free agents. And because they're unknown, they get more run with the fan base. Because there is the mystery of the unknown. It's the allure that gets you. The unknown immediately has a positive spin on it. The vast majority of late round and undrafted players are not going to end up being stars in the NFL. That's just a probability. But there's always mystery associated with the unknown. And fans being as crazy optimistic as we are sometimes, we assume that if it's unknown, it must be better than what's known. The mystery box could be anything. It could even be a boat. Or you could just get the boat. Dane Jackson has that vibe to me. First and 10, 302 are left in the first. Darnold sacked. Jackson carries an ISO route beautifully, vertically down the field. Perriman breaks it off. He's in great position. Dane Jackson's ability to run is the thing that gives me a little hope that maybe he can play a little bit. Because Dane Jackson is a 4-5-7 guy. Stop me if you've heard this before. He's really physical. He's a good tackler. Over-aggressive. Not a great athlete. Has decent size for the position. Does that sound like anybody you know? Dane Jackson is a slightly thinner, slightly faster Josh Norman. And what we're hoping he could possibly become is something we kind of already have. So, how did he look? I thought he looked really well. My big concern was, can he run in man coverage? And just like my observations about Josh Norman from the Raiders game, I was intrigued. Maybe he can play. And that's as far as I'm going. It's just as far as I went with Justin Zimmer last time we talked. I think he should get an opportunity to prove he can be a rosterable player. 
I'm not saying he's the answer at CB2. I'm not saying he's the answer at nickel. I'm not saying he's the answer at anything. I'm not even sure he's a rosterable player. I'm just saying that from the information we have thus far, it looks like he's the player he was in college. That's the scouting report on Dane Jackson. He's physical. He's aggressive. He's a good tackler. He has less than ideal physical characteristics that would get him into trouble. Four, five, seven guys don't run really well with four, four guys. That's just the way it is. Well, Bruce, we play a zone defense. You still got to run, folks. But playing him in off coverage and allowing him to trigger downhill was helpful. And the few reps he did get man on man, he moved pretty well. Overall, I would say, sure. Sure, with Dane Jackson. Levi Wallace could be back this week. I have no problem with giving Dane Jackson some run at CB2. AJ Epines is a similar scenario. Had nine snaps, had a couple splashes. The reason why he only had nine snaps is because Dean Marlowe had to remind him where to line up multiple times. That's the reason why he only has nine snaps. It's not just about the plays that you see where he makes a positive impact. It's about all the other plays where he wasn't where he was supposed to be and something bad happened because of that. The Jets broke off a really big run because he was in the wrong spot and Dean Marlowe tried to tell him. Ironically enough, Dean Marlowe tried to tell Mario Addison he was in the wrong spot too. I'm starting to think Dean Marlowe is precognitive. It's clear why the Bills like Dean Marlowe. So, Duke Williams, who everybody was talking about, speaking of mystery box player, Duke Williams got four snaps. Non-factor, not a impact player in the NFL by any means. Perfectly reasonable practice squad player in the NFL. Struggles to do the two most important things necessary to play wide receiver in the NFL, separate and catch the ball. Duke Williams is exactly where he needs to be. There was offensive adjustments this week. Let's talk about them. You know, the book on a quarterback is important. The book on Josh Allen last year was play single high, play cover zero, play man, bring pressure. He won't be able to get it to an open receiver before the pressure gets home. You're going to make him run around like a chicken with a head cut off. Then that was still the book on Josh Allen when he came into 2020. That did not go well for opposing teams for the first couple of weeks of this season. For the first four weeks, Josh Allen lit him up. So now there's a new book on Josh Allen. And the new book on Josh Allen is zone early. And then on third down, you can play man, which is what the Jets did. It was like playing duck, duck, goose. But instead of duck, duck, goose, it was zone, zone, man. The Jets were literally just walking around going, zone, 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 man. And then, ah, I got to run around. That's what the Jets were doing. First and second down, they bust out soft zone. In case you're wondering what soft zone means, it refers both to the depth of the corners and what type of zone it is at the snap. Tampa two, cover four, quarters, cover six. 
In case you don't know what cover six is, it's really easy. Half the fields cover four, half the fields cover two. Four plus two is six. That's what cover six is. In case you're ever wondering when you see what cover six is. Cover three. This is a good thing. The fact that this is the book on Josh Allen right now, and this is how teams are trying to attack the Bills, is a good thing. You know why? This is how you play good quarterbacks. I'm going to say that again for emphasis. The way that the Jets and the Titans and the Chiefs have played Josh Allen is the way NFL teams historically play good quarterbacks. You've heard the old adage. You pressure bad quarterbacks, you play coverage against good quarterbacks. Well, it's not quite that simple. But if you're playing really soft zone and you're forcing Josh Allen to be patient, you're doing that because you're scared of getting beat. They play soft zone first and second down. Sometimes they have late rotation of their safeties for disguises. And then on third down, goose. I was wrong about how they were going to play Josh Allen. I said in my pod last week, that you know what you're going to get from Greg Williams. You're going to get man. You're going to bring pressure. I was wrong. I was wrong. And that's a testament to Josh Allen that I was wrong. Because that's not how the Jets played Allen. They modified their approach to play Josh Allen differently because Josh Allen has proven that the previous book on him will no longer work. And that's what a franchise quarterback is. A franchise quarterback is someone where there is no book on him. There isn't one thing that a defense can do where if you do this thing, you have a high probability of success against that quarterback. Because if there is one book on a quarterback, well, if you just do this, he won't play very well. And that's not a franchise quarterback because then everyone will do that and he won't play well in the majority of his games and that's not a franchise quarterback. But it's the next step. Sean McDermott said it after the game. He continues to evolve. I came away from this game optimistic about Josh Allen because I started to see in the second half him figuring it out. I know what they're doing against me. I know how to get away from it. I get it. Early in the game, another one of those drop crash decisions in zone coverage where you have a zone defender who can either crash down on a shallower route or drop back on a deeper route behind him. The Pierre Desir near interception that happened earlier in the Jets game, the Malcolm Butler interception, both of those things happen because the defense and the defender knows that Josh Allen wants to take the deeper of the two shots. If it's a high-low concept, the defender there in that zone knows that Josh Allen wants to throw the deeper route. Butler picked it off. Desir did not pick it off. But in the second half, Josh Allen was making different decisions. Got to stay patient against the zone. You can scheme up zone beaters, but you got to stay patient. The Bills came out with 16 straight pass plays. I disagree with Brian Dable on this one. I said in my lead up, to the game on Friday's pod that I think that without McClendon, there's a chance for the running backs to do a little bit better. The Bills clearly did not think that McClendon was the reason for the Jets' defensive run stoutness in week one, where I said, hey, don't bash your head against the wall if it's not working. They came out with 16 straight passes. I would have tested that a little bit more. So I was 
right on one thing and I was wrong on one thing. I was right on the fact that McClendon had a significant impact on the rush defense because they were markedly looser this game as a run defense against the Bills than they were week one. So I was right about that one. And I was wrong about the Greg Williams thing. I was wrong about how they were going to defend Josh Allen. You win some, you lose some. When you have lots of opinions, like I do, you're going to get some wrong and you're going to get some right. I would have liked to have seen that. But in the second half, you start to see packaged plays to allow Josh to take numbers advantages, take advantage of slot corners who blitz. Slot corners blitz, you flare it out to Cole Beasley on a wide receiver screen. Now you've got the numbers advantage. The franchise quarterback concept is about having answers. So if you have an offensive coordinator who builds answers into the plays and the quarterback is able to take advantage of them, that's on your way to being a franchise quarterback. And these adjustments don't start at halftime. They started halfway through the second quarter. That's when you start to see it. Quarterback scrambling is good against man. Because they're in the pocket, the corners have now turned their backs, and they've run away. Some of you don't have a spy who can get up with you. Do you know what's good against zone? Designed quarterback draws. Because those linebackers are not taking their first step forward at the time of the snap. They're taking their first step backward or they're staying stationary, which lets the blockers get up on them before the quarterback starts to run. The first time we saw that, about halfway through the second quarter, that's when these adjustments started to happen. And that's when the Bills started turning it on on offense. It's the second game in a row with good coaching that led to an opportunity for a field goal right before half. Now, this time it was made, but the Chiefs game got us that too. This is a further testament to Sean McDermott learning from his clock management issues and hiring a game day coach that will help. Here's what will not help. Penalties and unforced errors. You can get away with it against teams where you're dominating them 400 plus yards to less than 200. You can get away with it against the Jets. You can't get away with it with good teams. Unforced penalties, illegal motion, illegal shift, false start, offsides. It's a matter of focus. And I just, I hate to see it. Stefan Diggs. Vocal on the sideline. In a positive way. Not vocal on the sideline in a feed me sort of way. What's wrong with you offense? Give me the ball way. This is really important when it comes to Stefan Diggs. Do not confuse a dog with a drama queen. They are not the same. Stefan Diggs is a dog. Sometimes passion can get misconstrued. But don't confuse a dog with a drama queen. Now, you guys all really enjoyed the plurality pie I did last week. Yes, I've named it. It is called the plurality pie. It is where I assign blame or credit for a win or a loss. And I decided I was going to call it the plurality pie. And I'm going to kind of give some further explanation for it. Any individual contributions that show up in the other category 
are less individually than the lowest percentage I used elsewhere. It is also very unlikely that head coach will ever be on it because the involvement is kind of in everything. And sometimes it's a little bit too vague. Now, there may be a specific decision, two-point decision, fourth-down decision, things like that, where Sean McDermott will show up. But it'll be very rare because he touches kind of everything. It's hard to isolate the head coach on game day. Without further ado, this is the plurality pie. 29% of the credit goes to Josh Allen. Josh Allen had a very, very boring 300-yard day. And we needed it as a fan base to see him have that. I'm also seeing things in his development that lend credence to everyone talking about how smart he was on the whiteboard coming out of college. 9% Jerry Hughes. Jerry Hughes was pivotal in the second half of that game. Two sacks, an interception to seal it. His ability to play left end has really helped this defensive line a lot. One of the things coming into this offseason that we talked about was how we had multiple right ends on the defensive line. How is it going to work? Jerry Hughes, who has played predominantly right end, has shifted over and playing a lot of snaps from left end. Did a lot of his best work from left end this game. His flexibility is paying off for the Bills defensive line. 12% Ed Oliver. Ed Oliver was very, very, very good. Ed Oliver had a better and more dominant day than Jerry Hughes. He just didn't get the stats. He was very, very good. 9% Brian Dable for helping Josh Allen make adjustments and make different play calls when he saw how the Jets were defending Josh Allen. 19% Cole Beasley. Cole Beasley is one of the reasons Josh Allen was able to beat the zone. Without Cole Beasley or a player of that caliber against that softer zone, you can't get them out of it. They'll just play it all day. You have to make a defense regret their decisions in coverage or they'll just keep doing it. It's like Tecmo Super Bowl. They'll keep playing the same play over and over and over again unless you also pick it. And then it goes that crazy blitz that Tecmo Super Bowl used to do where All the players would just collapse on the quarterback. It was riotous. 22% other. Lots of individual people in here. AJ Epinesa, Mario Addison, Matt Milano, who played limited snaps, but third and fourth downs, he was really important. Dane Jackson stepped up. There were all their contributions, but they were all less than the 9% that I picked for Jerry Hughes and Brian Dable. Why no Tyler Bass, Bruce? Six of eight field goals is 75%. The 2020 average is 84.9%. There's a positive here. He made six field goals. But he did the things that you would expect a kicker to do. The positive for Tyler Bass is the mentality. When you listen to him talk, you see the correct mentality. You understand why the coaches continue to have faith in him. Golfing. Kicking, shooting, archery, these are all very, very significantly mental games. Ask any golfer or shooter or archer about the mental side of it. I don't want to give up on the kicker too soon. Young Wei Koo, 
Dustin Hopkins. These are players who teams gave up on. Dustin Hopkins may have been given up on by the Bills. Now, of course, that was an injury. But kickers do sometimes take some time. I'm not ready to bail on him quite yet. And I think he has the right mentality to make sure he becomes a reasonable kicker for the Buffalo Bills. Ladies and gentlemen, we have dissected the narratives. We have done the plurality pie. And until tomorrow, when we were going to dive into trade deadline stuff, almighty takes, crumbling their cookies, it's going to be a packed episode tomorrow. Until then, I bid you adieu. And I say, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumble.